Coming up on Stu Does America, you picked a hell of an episode to tune into because tonight I'm very excited to present my extended interview with Ben Shapiro. We hit a lot of topics and dive into his new book, How to Destroy America in Three Easy Steps. So this is definitely one you don't want to share with your friends. And what's the best way to share said video with said friends? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Send them to my YouTube channel where they can watch completely free. Just search my name, Stu, and I'll be the first one there. Don't forget to subscribe to the channel and then like and comment on all the videos, all of them, every single one, even this one right now, before you forget or I say something that pisses you off. You can also catch me on your favorite podcast provider. If you're looking at my face uh, and you don't like that sort of thing, I understand, certainly. Uh, while you're there downloading our episodes, please uh, make sure to rate us the appropriate number of stars, which is five. And leave us a nice review, something like, you know, it's great, whatever. And finally, support the show and others on this network with a subscription to Blaze TV. Just head to blazetv.com slash stew. Be sure to use the promo code stew because that's how they know you like this stupid show and you'll save 10 bucks. Be sure you've had lots of sleep and coffee before starting this episode because our main guest talks fast and he talks smart. Let's do Ben Shapiro. Stu does America. Ben Shapiro has a new book out called How to Destroy America in Three Easy Steps. And it couldn't be more appropriately timed considering everyone seemingly wants to destroy America. If you think that sounds crazy, well, congratulations. Your business was probably not one of the ones that was just burned to the ground. One of these things that Ben uh, covers in his book is a sort of a, know, evaporation of reason from our debates. There used to be this sort of thing that we did in this country where we all agreed that we had a common culture and history. And we sort of generally agreed on these things. We set up some fences around the playground and we all generally stayed inside of them. At the same time, we respect individual rights. So if you want to go on the slide and I want to go on the monkey bars, well, that's totally cool. We don't throw rocks at each other or bash, bash each other in the head with a you know, tire swing. But other than that, we can pretty much do what we want and live with people we disagree with. That structure has served us pretty well for a couple of hundred years, but it seems to be going away, disintegrating in front of our eyes. We'll get into depth on the uh, convention coming up uh, today, but this feels like something that is going way beyond politics, doesn't it? Think about this. I mean, I am perfectly capable of doing all of these things at the same time. Uh, thinking uh, the George Floyd incident was really bad thinking the Breonna Taylor incident was really bad, but for completely different reasons. Thinking the Jacob Blake incident was quite unfortunate, but very, very avoidable if he had acted differently. And also thinking the Jacob Blake sexual assault was pretty bad too. Oh, and by the way, the Cannon Hinnant incident was also horrific. And all of these things I can judge individually. Some I will agree with the left and the media on because the facts support that conclusion. Some I would entirely agree with the police because the facts support that conclusion. And with all of that going on, I can rationally analyze the facts and realize the facts also support the conclusion that there is no statistical evidence of a systemic genocide of black people by white cops. While certain incidents are legitimately wrong and troubling, the systemic complaint is just not real. It is not supported by the facts. And if you care about black lives, you should be thrilled to hear this. You might disagree with a conclusion or two that I've reached, but I bet you're able to make these distinctions too. Why can't the left, why can't the media, 
Why can't they seem to think through the facts of a case and make a sober judgment? Why does every discussion of systemic racism rely not on facts and figures, but with a list of a few well-known names that have made a media impact? Why is this an excuse to burn down a city? It's because their goal is different than our goal. Our goal is to hold people accountable for wrongdoing as individuals. Their goal is the disintegration of everything this country stands for. Our common culture, our common history, and reason and logic itself. This disintegration is the topic of Ben Shapiro's new book, How to Destroy America in Three Easy Steps. It's available now. We go in-depth with Ben Shapiro next. Trying to buy or sell a home in these times can be challenging. That's why you need a real estate agent who's going to come in and take charge. Do you need the house painted? Do you need to replace the stairs? Do you need the roof repaired? Do you need someone to explain to you the inspection? Do you need to find the right people for the right jobs? Well, you have a kind of a central person in a real estate agent. And that's why realestateagentsitrust.com exists because you get the best real estate agent at the beginning. You don't have to worry about all this other stuff. Realestateagentsitrust.com is Glenn's company. Uh, you may know that by now, Glenn Beck. Uh, he, he's a kind of a figure around here, has something to do with the start of the place. I'm not really sure. I don't really follow him that closely. A lot of times he's blah, 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 blah. I, I don't even know what he's saying. Honestly, it's hard to listen to. But the name says it all. Realestateagentsitrust.com. When you are moving across the country, maybe you've had a situation with your job that's caused you to move somewhere that you're not familiar with. Don't just call the first name you see in the, you know, a phone book, or if the phone book even exists, or a bench where a bus is passing by, if you're allowed out of your house, uh, just call, uh, go to real estate agent, uh, realestateagentsitrust.com. Just do it. It's easier. Realestateagentsitrust.com. They've done the work for you to find the best agents. Realestateagentsitrust.com. Today's guest is internationally known for, and I'm quoting here, wrecking the libs. Mm-hmm. He's practically the authority on it, in fact. For most of you, that description is enough to guess that I'm talking about Ben Shapiro, author, founder of The Daily Wire and host of The Ben Shapiro Show. For those who know him, uh, he's far more than that, though. He's one of the hardest working people in the industry. He's got a great new book out, How to Destroy America in Three Easy Steps. Ben, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, The book's great. Uh, It really is a a needed, uh, important book at this time, I would say, for many different reasons. Um, It kind of goes through, it's structured in a way that sets up this sort of battle between disintegrationists and unionists. Can 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 you explain the two groups? Sure. So and when you look at any country, you have to determine what are the unifying factors that make the country a country. And usually you look at things like a common history, a common philosophy and a common culture. Uh, Unionist Americanism believes that that's exactly what we have in the United States. We have a common history. It's a history based on shared principle that's rooted in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. We haven't always lived up to those highest principles, but the story of America is about the forwarding of those principles over time and the perfectibility of our republic by adhering to those founding principles. We have a common philosophy. That is the philosophy of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, the philosophy that all men are created equal, endowed by their creators with certain inalienable rights. Those rights pre-exist government. Government is instituted in order to protect those rights. And finally, we have a common culture, a culture that suggests that that church and family are important, that a culture of adventure and entrepreneurialism is uh, is sought, that, that basically our lives are in our own hands and we ought to purvey a culture of agency that that basically you have freedom and you ought to use your freedom in responsible ways. 
Then there's the disintegrationist culture of the United States, the disintegrationist ideas uh, of, of this, this other viewpoint. Uh, the disintegrationists believe that we don't have a common history. We have a series of pitched battles between various interest groups in the United States, between race and class interest groups, and that basically all of America's founding principles are a lie, that they are not only a lie that they are wrong, that all men are not created equal, that they should not be equal before the law, that all rights come from government, they don't pre-exist government, and that government is empowered to basically do whatever it can in order to effectuate equality at the expense of liberty, and that our culture contributes to all of the bad things about America, all the hierarchies of power, church is bad, family is bad, uh, that, that we really need to cultivate a culture of entitlement wherein rent-seeking from the government and from society is something to be aspired to. And, and it's those conflicting visions of America that we're seeing play out today actually in the streets. Yeah, I mean, the disintegrationist thing has always been around, but it, it's always felt like this sort of background, um, uh, somewhat you know, intellectual circles where people were kind of tossing these ideas around, where in public we would always say to each other, certainly, we do believe in the unionist philosophy that you describe, that we do have these common things. Lately, I feel like that has really changed, uh, especially over the past. I mean, the Trump era probably defines it at, at some level, but it's been even more uh, intense uh, in, in recent in recent months. Um, you talk about um, the step step one for destroying America. The book is the three steps. Um, you say that some people will have to sacrifice in order uh, their existing rights in order uh, for others to have new ones. And it's it screams of Ibram Kendi, who who writes, you know, uh, uh, you know, the only solution to past discrimination is, is present discrimination. The only solution to present discrimination is future discrimination. This used to be the type of thing that people would deny. Right. Like you would deny that that was the reason you were doing it. Of course, we all just want equality. There's no longer even a claim of that anymore. And it seems particularly brazen. It is pretty amazing how open this stuff now is. I mean, Ibram Kennedy literally suggests that any system that results in inequality between groups is an effective racist system. And there are only two categories of people, racist and anti-racist. If you are anti-racist, you wish to tear down the system. If you are racist, you don't want to tear down the system. So we can simply label you a racist by virtue of the fact that you are pro-America and that you believe in the systems of checks and balances and the rights of the Declaration of Independence. These are all bad things. Instead, we are to look to outcomes as the ultimate adjudicator of whether something is morally correct, which is precisely the opposite of what the founders thought and precisely the opposite of traditional morality, actually. Yeah, I mean, it's the difference between um, the old claim of equality and the new one of equity. Like these are the words sound very similar, but they have very different meanings. And I think the American people are not even near the point where they're starting to 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 pick up the change uh, in in approach. There, do you do you see that coming? Absolutely. I, I think that eventually Americans might figure it out. But the similarity in the two words has allowed the the left to to really obfuscate. So they they will say things like. All inequality is inequity, which is patently absurd, right? I am unequal to LeBron James in my ability to play basketball. That is not an inequity. That's just a reality, right? But Le LeBron James might not be equal in my ability to speak politically. That's not in, in that's not inequality. That's I mean that's not inequity. That's just inequality. That there, there's a certain level of human beings being different that is just natural to human beings, and that exists in all varieties of life. It has nothing to do with color. It exists. In every, in every room, if you draw a line down the middle of the room, there will be two groups that are unequal in certain ways. That is just the way life works. 
to suggest that that is the result of systems is ultimately uh, not only self-defeating, but in- intensely crazy. I mean, it basically suggests <laughs> that if we only perfect the system, we will all end up as widgets who are exactly the same in every respect. Not only that, Ibram Kendi basically removes all individual agency. So any choice that you personally make that's bad for you is not you personally making a bad choice. It's the system has forced you to make a bad choice, which means all individual responsibility is absolved of you. You, you. you no longer have either the capacity to make an individual decision or the responsibility for making an individual decision. Well, the good news there is that you're never responsible for your own failures. The bad news is that you're never going to be able to be a success because the only things that bring about success in normal free life are you making good decisions. Are you surprised, Ben, at how quickly this disintegrationist view is being picked up right now from the def- you know, from sort of the white fragility sort of mindset where, you know, the word racism just means something different than it used to mean. They've just taken it and they've adopted it into something totally different, this systemic idea um, of racism that is against everything that we were taught growing up. And now you see this so widespread. You see NBA players doing press conferences where they're talking about these bizarre, seemingly fringe concepts that have been thrust into the mainstream in such a short period of time. You know, I think this was boiling under the surface for several decades. So Shelby Steele talks about how in the 1960s there was an overt shift from language regarding racism and the definition of racism. He says that the original definition of racism was exactly what you and I tend to think of racism as, namely, you think that somebody is inferior or superior based on their race. That And that racism was an obstacle to free choice of individuals. That was the reason why racism was bad, is because it created obstacles to you being able to make good and free decisions on your own behalf that result in exactly the results you deserve. Now that has shifted, and the, the way that shifted is by suggesting that all individual decision-making is the result of systems. And therefore, again, all bad decision-making cannot be attributed to the individual. It has to be attributed to the system. And therefore, the more unsuccessful you are, the more of a claim you actually have against the system. It actually creates an incentive for victimhood because now that you're a victim of the system, you get to tear down the system of which you're a victim. You actually are given an enormous amount of control to tear down the system. If you're successful, that in effect makes you unable to speak about the system because now you're a defender of exactly the system that has produced the inequality. That's incredibly dangerous stuff. It it tended to be fringe in the 1960s. Over time, it's gained a lot of credence. I think a lot of political actors have a real interest in keeping discussions of racism alive rather than looking at actual solutions. You can see that over the past couple of years. I just wrote a column about this with regard to Kamala Harris. If you want to see how, I I would say, uh, in in tool-driven form, how, how... Practically, people view racism as a tool for political success. All you have to do is look at Kamala Harris, who a year ago was calling Joe Biden a racist. Then she flipped and Joe Biden is the great light bringer with regard to unity and (laughs) anti-racism. And when asked about it, she said, well, yeah, that was a debate. Well, yeah, that was something I had to say. So it's an instrumental view of racism. Racism is something that you discuss in order to get ahead. Racism is not a problem to be solved so we can move beyond it. Yeah, I mean, you, you point this out really well. You write, human nature is inherently malleable. This is a disintegrationist view. Human nature is inherently malleable. Uh, and a, a reason, a mere tool of power. That's exactly what you're describing there. And I feel like that is happening so much. I mean, we even see this in a way with um, the Minneapolis riots. And I think the thing, everything that's going on in Kenosha right now, right, where Minneapolis is having riots because someone committed suicide and they have video of it and they're still, uh, you know, uh, rioting. Kenosha is the same thing where, look, we don't have all the facts on this issue yet. What's what we know is, is, you know, there's a lot in question here, but it doesn't matter if this comes out that we find out that 10 seconds before, you know, uh, Blake looked into his car, he, you know, pulled out a knife that we couldn't see or a gun that we couldn't see or he said something directly threatening to his children or whatever. It won't matter. It has the reason it has nothing to do with this whatsoever. And it's it's an important 
uh, part of the disintegrationist view, I think, because it, it, it softens the foundation. I, I feel like I make the points at times to try to convince people of things. It doesn't matter if they're true or not. It doesn't matter if they're, you know, their argument can be incomprehensible. It doesn't seem to matter anymore. Now, truth is of no value. The only the only value is that America is bad and the narrative has to be promoted at any cost. And this is why mm. you see the Black Lives Matter movement, whenever they list the victims and they do the say his name or say her name, they never differentiate between fact patterns. So Rayshard Brooks is exactly the same as Eric Garner, is exactly the same as Breonna Taylor, is exactly the same thing as, as Tamir Rice, is exactly the same thing as Michael Brown. All of these have different fact patterns. Right? Mm. Ahmed Arbery is nothing whatsoever like Jacob Blake. Okay, right. and Jacob Blake does not look like Breonna Taylor. I mean, these are all different fact patterns. And by the way, in the vast majority of these cases, no prosecution is is justified. I mean, the fact is that in the Breonna Taylor case, there's now good evidence demonstrating that the warrant, the, the no-knock warrant on her apartment was justified by the evidence. Uh, they're, they're, the In order to make a case against those officers, you'd have to establish that the warrant was originally fraudulently obtained, which it was not, and that the cops knew it was fraudulently obtained, mm-hmm. and that they were not shot at, that they shot first. None of those facts have been established. In fact, the opposite seems to have been established. With regard to the Jacob Blake shooting, the one that has led off this this new round of, of craziness and violence in Kenosha, the facts are that there was an open warrant on the guy for domestic abuse as well as sexual assault, that a person called 911 on him because apparently he was involved in another incident of domestic abuse at the time. The police arrived. They knew his criminal record. They knew he had resisted arrest before. They tried to arrest him. He resisted arrest. He broke free of them. Apparently, they tried to use a taser, and that failed. He, he disobeyed every single command. He walked around at the outside of the car. He then leaned forward into the car and they found on the floorboards of the driver's side a knife. Okay, it it is impossible to suggest in those circumstances that the police officers are going to be convicted of anything remotely obtaining to murder. And even in the George Floyd case, we still have not established causation. There are two separate autopsies, one of which suggests that the officer, Derek Chauvin, was not actually the causative factor in in George Floyd's death. I mean, the man had enough fentanyl in him to kill a horse. He he was claiming he couldn't breathe before he was on the ground. But again, when you mention these facts, people start to get deeply uncomfortable and they say, well, you're ignoring the broader problem of systemic racism. Well, in order for you to make a broader narrative case, you're going to have to show some stats or you're going to have to show some studies or you're going to have to show like actual cases where the fact pattern matches what you're talking about. The, the, the way you can tell truth absolutely does not matter here is the fact that Kamala Harris, now the vice presidential candidate on the Democratic ticket, this year tweeted out that Michael Brown was murdered. There are two separate states prosecutors found that wasn't the truth and the Obama DOJ. None of that matters. It's, it's, it's so true. It really doesn't matter. Let's take a quick break. We'll come back with more with Ben Shapiro here in just a second. We're back with Ben Shapiro. The book is How to Destroy America in Three Easy Steps. Please don't give them any hints. They're already down this road enough, uh, Ben. Um, one of the things I thought was really interesting is I went in, and it's an election year. Ben Shapiro's releasing a book. I feel like I'm going to go in there and you're going to, you know, you're going to give me a lot of arguments about why Democrats are really bad. Um, and there are plenty of them, and they are. Um, however, I, I thought a lot of the book really applies to more broad concepts than that. I mean, this sort of back and forth that, you know, has been somewhat famous over the past year or so between conservatives, between sort of the rights based conservatives and common good conservatives. So much of the book, I think, applies to that debate as well. It's explicit at times, but other times I don't think it is. Well, how much of that was intentional? Uh, that was definitely intentional. I mean, there's an entire section in there where I talk about the difference between you know, common good conservatism and rights-based conservatism, which I think is really a valuable and interesting and necessary discussion. You can see uh, there's sort of a debate on the right about 
a lot of founding principles, like whether rights pre-exist government and how the government ought to treat rights. What is the purpose of government? Is government there to instill virtue or is government there to protect rights? What do social institutions do? What happens when social institutions are undermined by people's exercise of freedoms? Where does the government step in? Now, these are all interesting debates, and I think I take them on uh, in the book. The reason that I didn't turn it into a simple Democrat versus Republican thing is because I think there's still a lot of Democrats making up their mind which side of the unionist disintegrationist divide they are, they are currently on. Mm. Right now, there again, there's two views of the United States. One is that America was founded in eternal good and true principles on the greatest set of founding principles any country has ever been founded on uh, and one and that we can tinker within that system in order to rectify breaches and and move toward the fulfillment of those founding ideals another is that the founding ideals of the united states suck and that the united states is actively racist sexist bigoted homophobic and that springs back all the way from its roots there's half of the Democratic Party right now that seems to fit within the first mold, which is that the founding principles are good. We just need to tinker within the system and make it better. And then there's half of the Democratic Party that says, no, America sucks. And the reason it sucks is because its founding principles always sucked. There are a few that we like, but mostly we don't like them. And you see some Democrats masquerading as sort of the, the unionists who actually are disintegrationists. I would put Barack Obama into this camp uh, during his speech where he stood next to the Constitution, for example, he suggested that he stands for the Declaration and the Constitution, and then he boiled down the Declaration and the Constitution to pure, unbridled democracy, which, of course, is precisely the opposite of many of the things that the founders believed about republicanism and rule of the mob and rights pre-existing government. So he, he does this sort of clever thing where he pretends to be a unionist, but he's actually a disintegrationist. Uh, you see some of the same stuff coming from Joe Biden, but I think there are a lot of Democrats who believe the system should be upheld. The system is good. We just need to tinker within it. The problem that I'm seeing right now for the Democrats is that the Democrats who are arguing that America is inherently bad actually share more with the disintegrationists than they do with the unionists. So you see Joe Biden releasing a video about the riots in Kenosha, and he spends the first minute of that video talking about how black people are systemically discriminated against, how America is out to kill black people, how it makes him sick that black people are being shot in the street in broad daylight. And then he's like, but if you elect me, everything will be all better and violence is unnecessary. <laughs> and it's like, well, you can't really make the case, really, that the entire system is rotten stem to stern. But if you elect this octogenarian white guy who's been in government for 50 years, he's going to heal it all. Like, why would anybody believe that? <laughs> I, they shouldn't. They they absolutely shouldn't. Um, I, I think it was uh, I, I was thinking about the way you frame this in the, in the disintegrationist versus unionist sort of argument. Um, and it, it struck me, do you think that common good conservatives are unint unintentionally disintegrationist? Because I tend to be on the same side as you, I think, as, as rights-based. But you make a case here that just because our social policy beliefs might be, in our views, the right ones, when you turn it upside down and you have the government leading that process, you can just go down bad roads unintentionally. Right. I mean, I think that in order to make the, the case for what people are calling common good conservatism, you really have to turn a lot of the founding ideals on their head. Mm. A lot of the ideals that have unified the country, like the, the basic idea, for example, that rights pre-exist government, the government only is there to protect rights. The government is not actually there as a as a formative creature that is intended to shape virtue primarily uh, or that social institutions are supposed to be upheld by government. The problem is every time you move away from a rights based conservatism, what you end up with is granting government extraordinary power over individual rights in the name of some good. Now, I know common good conservatives will say, well, the left is doing that, why shouldn't we? I mean, if they're using the government in order to effectuate their policy preferences, why shouldn't we do that? And, and the answer is because you are fundamentally undermining the nature of individual rights by doing so. Uh, the fact is that there are a lot of things that people have a right to do that I think they ought not do, but that doesn't mean that you can use the government to quash those things unless you are perfectly comfortable with Elizabeth Warren taking over that exact same tool of government and using it against you. I understand sort of the opportunistic sentiments that lies in, okay, well, we're gonna grab the government, we're gonna use it to the best of our ability to crack 
smack back against the left. I get it. But I, I, I on a fundamental level, I, I do not understand the confidence with which common good conservatives say we'll take over government and then that won't be turned against us five minutes from now. I, I I just don't I don't see it. I mean, the, the same people, for example, who are arguing that the government should basically take over big tech. How comfortable are they going to be when it's Elizabeth Warren leading up the commission to determine what you can say on big tech? Mm, yeah, I uh, totally agree with that. You know, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing that I hear all the time when I have these conversations. And they're good people and they're, they're friends of mine that go this way, which is it, it, the problem with your viewpoint, meaning mine is, you know, you can have the free market, but what if the free market doesn't give us this X, Y, and Z thing that we want? The result winds up being that you lose. And I kind of wind up just defining, I think, win and loss differently. There's a a moral part of that, I think, that, you know, whether you lose a particular debate or not uh, is not really the issue. How do you how do you, you know, bridge that gap? Because I don't I feel like people are so in the moment politically that a a quote unquote loss is enough to overturn all these foundations. I think that's right. And I think that you, we have to understand long term that the only thing either we're going to be a country together or we're not. And the only way that we're going to be a country together is we're going to have to have some tolerance for people who disagree and for people who have rights that are used in ways that we don't necessarily like. Because if we all had to agree on exactly how our rights are to be used, well, then what's the purpose of the right in the first place? So the, the whole point of the founders is that rights were balanced by virtues, right? We trust we trust our population to be moral and righteous outside the compulsion of government. And that's how rights are upheld. Um, but it seems like common conservatives have lost the the confidence that the American people have the capacity for that. And so the idea is we have to reinculcate that top down via the use of government. I just don't under I really don't understand if the argument is that the American people have lost virtue and therefore we are going to use the commanding heights of government in order to reinstill virtue. Who do you think is voting for the people who are going to be at the top of those commanding heights of government? Do they think it's going to be virtuous people who are voting for that? Or are they not virtuous people who are going to be voting for government to actually compel action that, that virtuous people object to? Um, let me hit you with a couple of uh, things. The Republican National Convention, of course, going on now. This is not the message of that convention. Um, it's not the message of the Republican Party right now. I mean, right now, the Republican Party is obviously a, a Trump-led party. Um, I have some things that I really like out of that uh, result and some things I really don't like out of that result. How do you, uh, how do you see this going right now? And, and what do you think of the convention so far? Uh, I think the convention so far has actually been really, really well done. Uh, I I think they've focused in on a lot more the ordinary Americans. I think they've focused in on the anti-left nature of of the Republican Party, which is basically the unifying glue of the Republican Party at this point. There have been a few people who have cited founding values. Kirstie Noem, for example, I think Mm -hmm. did it pretty well. Nikki Haley talked about that a fair bit. Tim Scott talked about it a fair bit. But you're right. There's a fair bit of variety in exactly the approach that's that's being brought to bear. Um, But look, Parties are imperfect tools for ideologies and philosophies, which is why I talk in the book a lot more about philosophy and ideology than about party. If ever the Republican Party were to completely abandon the notions that I hold dear, well, then I've always held myself to be a conservative and a classical liberal long before I was a Republican. Um, and one more here before I let you go, and I appreciate you the take of the time. The book is uh, is How to Destroy America in Three Easy Steps, Ben Shapiro. Um, one thing I think conservatives struggle with in the middle of this, in the middle of an election season, uh, in the middle of a global pandemic, is how to talk and deal with coronavirus generally. I think there's this idea that, and the correct idea, that we can't just shut down our economy from now until the year 2075. Uh, that's not something that's possible, uh, nor should is it the right thing to do even if we could do it. Um, But with that instinct and the resistance from the Gavin Newsom's and the Andrew Cuomo's is an instinct, I think, for conservatives to say, well, it's not as big a deal as they're making it out to be that that it's you know, this is not a huge problem, Um, you know, whether it's downplaying numbers of dead people and, and all of the things that I think go on incorrectly. So 
How to? I, I, I've really struggled with trying to communicate this, and that it's okay, right, for a conservative to say, "Hey, uh, we don't want the economy shut down." You know, these overreaches are a real, real problem. At the same time, this is really bad. That doesn't seem like the the, the type of approach uh, that is going on right now. And I think it's actually an approach that would help Trump in the election. Well, I mean, I totally agree. I think that taking it seriously, particularly for people who are vulnerable and who are older, uh, makes a lot of sense. I mean, the people who are vulnerable and older. And I think that everybody else, it makes sense to socially distance if you're going to be in context of, of a lot of other people or if you are going to go home to somebody who is vulnerable or who is older. It seems like the pattern of the virus is that it burns its way through communities and then that's pretty much it. And the only thing you can do is shield the vulnerable and protect the vulnerable and the elderly. Uh, and there are certain governors who did not do that, like Cuomo, and there are certain governors who did do that, like Ron DeSantis in, in Florida, who's been much maligned. Uh, the the refusal on the one side to acknowledge that this is not a single factor analysis, namely, we have to stop the virus from spreading, period, which nobody knows how to do. Uh, and and that, that's kind of the Democrats. We're going to stop the virus from spreading by you living in your basement forever, and we're just going to float you inflated cash. Uh, and on the Republican side, to be like, well, everything is totally fine. Let's go back to ball games and the elderly, uh, you know, well, you know, they'll, they'll be they'll be basically OK. You know, <laughs> like, I, I don't think that that's the case either. So. It seems like, by the way, most Americans understand this, right? What the statistics mm-hmm. shows, where the virus gets hottest, people put on masks and they socially distance, and they're still, by and large, going back to work. Uh, I think that, that is the proper solution, and it's always been bewildering to me that the heavy hand of lockdown was supposed to be the all. How that moved from we're slowing the spread to prevent the overwhelming to the hospital system to the all-purpose solution to coronavirus is beyond me because it's not working. What you're seeing is that. All over the world, in areas where this is already burned through, it's pretty much done. And in areas where it's not, it's just a matter of time until it does. And you can lock down, but eventually people are going to have to leave their basements. Ben Shapiro, the newest book is How to Destroy America in Three Easy Steps. The back-to-back, uh, day-to-day sort of uh, political nonsense can get at your nerves. It's a good time to go back and look at actual principles. What do we believe long-term, not just the next few weeks? Be sure to go pick it up today. It's a really great read. Ben Shapiro, thanks for coming on the program. I appreciate it. All right, back in a second. The ridiculous saga of the NBA uh, and its sort of season continues. Uh, of course, they had they started off. They played a bunch of games. They went to coronavirus, uh, you know, hi- hibernation, came back in a bubble inside of Disney World. And now they can't go to work because of social justice, I think, is the basic review of the season. Um, 100 NBA employees are now on strike in support of the players for social justice reasons. And, you know, I've been a little bit of a skeptic on this one, I have to say. I don't think it has much to do at all with social justice. Um, and I, I have this crazy idea. has. I guess I'll just admit it. I have this crazy idea. It has something to do with politics. <laughs> I know. It's wild. Because what what is always the solution in these moments? You know, it's never go talk to the police or try to work with police. I mean, I know Shaquille O'Neal did that. I mean, he became uh, a deputy of sorts uh, and actually worked with the force at, at one point. But he wasn't the one walking off the broadcast in the middle. That was Kenny Smith. And it always seems to be something to do with politics at the end of the day. And I don't know why I always get that suspicion. And I know it's a little bit, maybe I'm a little bit paranoid. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, the NBA has decided to come back to work now. They've announced a plan. And a big part of the plan is this. They've, uh, they're going to convert some NBA arena facilities into in-person voting locations for 2020. It's going to be a 
a voting outreach center, the, uh, the basketball league. They're going to bring people in to vote. This was all about getting people to vote for some reason. I don't know where I got this idea about politics, but for some reason, it's a little strange to me that after all of this, it's not about outreach to police. It's not about any of that stuff. It's always about getting people to vote for the guy who wrote the 94 crime bill. What a weird coincidence that is that, you know, one of the things that the left is, you know, these activists have complained about for years and years and years of this crime bill that puts too many African-Americans in prison. Yet their solution is to vote for one of the guys who authored it. I feel like I'm about to realize something and put all these pieces together, but I can't quite get there. Maybe you can. Let me know if you can. But on the other hand, make sure you go to an NBA arena to vote because that's going to solve racism, uh, obviously. Uh, by the way, uh, I find it really fascinating that Jacob Blake is the star of the show. Uh, you know, look, George Floyd, I think, had some issues. You know, we can talk about that. I don't think it's particularly relevant to that case. Honestly, um, you know, there's some uh, issues with, with the drugs and, and how that could have um, maybe played into his death. But honestly, like I thought the police actions were so wrong there that I, you know, I, I don't know that it's much of the story. The Jacob Blake thing is kind of a different situation. Here's a guy that has a warrant for his arrest who was called. Uh, the police were called because he was in a place he was not supposed to be. They came to break up a domestic disturbance. He got in a fight with officers and seemingly wrestled them to the ground at one point, which is not a good idea. Then when they told him to stop, this is after he had been tased, by the way, and that didn't was not effective. He walked around the car and then after telling uh, officers that he had a knife, got into the car and reached for what appears to be where the knife was. Uh, and then he was shot. Now, do I want him to be shot in that situation? I'd, I'd rather it not happen, frankly. Uh, I, you know, I, I don't think this is a good thing. I wish they had body cams so we could see maybe a little bit more of, the, of, of what was going on there because what we have now is just a, vi a, a, a vision of this case where it looks really bad, right? He's getting into the car, and while he should not be resisting arrest, we don't want people shot for those things um, if we can help it. I think we all kind of agree on that part of the story. What I found to be interesting is, you, you know, you're seeing NBA players now wearing the you know, shirts that say, uh, remember Jacob Blake's name. It, it appears that at least allegedly Jacob Blake is a rapist. Now, it's weird that people would use a rapist as the, you know, bulletin board material to pass some sort of reform, you know, important reforms like being able to vote at NBA arenas. But it does appear that this is what it is. He has a charge against him for third-degree sexual assault. Let me give you the actual explanation from Wisconsin law about this incident. Uh, here it is, uh, right here. There's only two things you have to hit. One, the defendant had sexual intercourse with the victim. Two, the victim did not consent to the sexual intercourse. This is the person people are wearing shirts of. Now, does that mean that you get shot because you committed sexual? Uh, I mean, let's be honest. That's just rape. I mean, what I just described is rape. He had sexual intercourse with someone who didn't want to have sexual intercourse with him. That's just rape. In my book, that's rape. I don't know. I guess it's third degree sexual assault in Wisconsin. In, in, my, in my book, it's just rape. So does that mean you get shot for, for what he did? Is that an appropriate response? I would say no. The appropriate response is he spends the rest of his life in prison. And again, that's my book. That's not Wisconsin law. But if you're committing rape... And, and it, it, well, you wind up being convicted of it. You, know, you spend the rest of your life in prison. This is not someone who I would want to champion as these, you know, the, the, the marquee 
uh, name in my in my effort to solve racism by, of course, getting people to vote inside of arenas where NBA players are. So I, it's a weird thing. Uh, you know, look, there is some stuff going around about how he had sex with a minor. That does not appear to be true. It seems to be from another state's law. And so if you see that online, probably not true. But that one is. Uh, it appears that he there's some other really more gross stuff that it could be. Uh, in the law, uh, but it, it does appear at the very least he had sex with someone who did not want to have sex with him. Not a good move. Should not do that uh, at all. Uh, really ever. Mm-hmm. Trying to be clear there. Um, finally, uh, let's go to this moment uh, because I think what we what we miss here is how these events affect other people. How does the the victim of Jacob Blake feel? who was raped by Jacob Blake, allegedly. If true, the victim is sitting out there and watching some of the biggest celebrities in the world unite around her rapist. And, I mean, how would that make you feel? The same thing I feel about what's went on with uh, Ann Dorn at the Republican National Convention. She, her husband, was murdered in these riots. Now, something like 30 people have been killed in these riots. And, you know, again, we try to do this math, but 30 is more than one. So the riots after George Floyd, now we're talking about 30 people killed in these riots. Um, and Ann Dorn was left to talk to people about what this feels like to be on the wrong side of this little movement uh, that people like LeBron James are pushing to get people to vote inside NBA arenas. Watch. After I'd gone to bed, David received a call from Lee's Alarm Company. The front door of the pawn shop had been breached. This time he didn't wake me up to tell me. He probably knew I would have tried to stop him or insist on going with him. As I slept, looters were ransacking the shop. They shot and killed David in cold blood and then live streamed his execution and his last moments on earth. David's grandson was watching the video on Facebook in real time, not realizing he was watching his own grandfather dying on the sidewalk. I relive that horror in my mind every single day. My hope is that having you relive it with me now will help shake this country from this nightmare we are witnessing in our cities and bring about positive, peaceful change. How do we get to this point where so many young people are callous and indifferent towards human life? This isn't a video game where you can commit mayhem and then just hit reset and bring all the characters back to life. Not sure there's anything else to say after that. Back in a second. Do you have some personal pet stories? Like, I don't mean stories about pets, but I mean, like, these little pet stories that you follow. And, like, every once in a while you go down, like, a YouTube wormhole about some random topic that you can't explain really why you care about it. Uh, I have a bunch of those. If you watch the show, you probably uh, realize some of them. Uh, uh, the, the country of Turkmenistan, for example. 
I'm obsessed with it. I just think it's fascinating. They have this weird dictator thing. The guy named, you know, the old dictator, he named days of the week after his book and his mom. He just changed like Tuesday to the day title of his book. Uh, you know, he, he built statues of himself all over the place that rotate to face the sun, which, again, if I'm building a statue of myself, I don't want it facing the sun. The sun will be in your eyes. You want to have it rotating away from the sun. Just a recommendation for the next dictator who might be out there. Tomorrow's dictators, watch Stu Does America. Um, <laughs> The Hotel of Doom uh, in Pyongyang, uh, North Korea, that, that crazy hotel they built in like the late, uh, I guess it was the late 80s, early 90s maybe, yeah, early 90s. Um, and they ran out of money in the middle of it, so this giant like concrete triangle in the middle of the city for a really long time, they finally covered it up with windows. Action Park, uh, my favorite amusement park when I was a kid, really like the world's most dangerous amusement park. Fantastic. I have an interview on that next week. There's a new documentary on HBO you've got to watch if you care about that. Um, and Tsar Bomba is another one. Uh, the largest nuclear weapon ever produced and ever tested, uh, done by the um, Soviet Union. There's new footage that just came out today of Tsar Bomba. Let's watch it. Okay, so I'll walk you through some of this. Um, there's Russian subtitle, uh, Russian speaking. The bomb is approaching the detonation point. Altitude 4,000 meters. Three seconds remaining. Three, two, one, zero. <laughs> Big flash. It was very bright, this bomb. The explosion had unusual strength at the time the carrier aircraft was 45 kilometers from the release point. A flash followed by glow. Despite the continuous cloudiness, visible for radius up to a thousand kilometers. <laughs> it's a big freaking bomb, man. Uh, I don't know why they did classic. There's a, see how loud it was? Yeah. What's amazing about this is it was seen up to about three, uh, 630 miles away, they saw the flash. They only tested it once, and no, no other nuclear weapon is really even close to this one as far as size goes. Nikita Khrushchev ordered a uh, Khrushchev. Khrushchev, ordered a uh, development of actually a 100 megaton bomb. You can just, if there's more, you can just keep letting that roll. I mean, we don't have to turn off the footage. Um, 100 megatons. They only had a few weeks to do it, though, so they only got it to 50 megatons. But that's still more than three times as big as any other nuclear bomb ever tested. So the, the U.S. came up with a 15 megaton one. Now we're no fun. Ours are like really targeted well and stuff, and it's, it's disappointing. Um, but uh, I love this description. Mushroom cloud reached an altitude of 210,000 feet. Uh, an observer felt the heat of the explosion from 168 miles away. And the ground zero was leveled. This is one description. Leveled, swept, and licked so that it looked like a skating rink. If it was dropped on Washington, D.C., it would have killed 2.2 million people. I mean, what's the big deal? Okay, let's go through some reviews. Uh, you can watch it on YouTube, by the way. Get your reviews on iTunes. We really appreciate them. Five stars, the appropriate number of stars. Uh, first review, marvelous, stupendous, incredible. It deserves more than five stars. Well, actually, five stars is the appropriate amount of stars. But five freaking stars. Thank you so much. Um, meh. It beats listening to chewing the fat, I guess. Well, that's definitely true. Five freaking stars. We have this one from Dr. Stoos. One star, two star, red star, blue star, five freaking stars. Whatever. Thank you very much. Uh, it's great or something, I guess. I see stars, five of them. The appropriate amount. That's right. We're very appropriate on the show. I don't know if you ever noticed this. I am never inappropriate. Five stars is the appropriate number of stars. 
five freaking stars. Thank you. And love the show. I'm a Blaze subscriber. I actually downloaded all this stuff to rate this stupid show. I love this stupid show. I look forward to listening to it on the Blaze. I really appreciate that. I know a lot of you can do that sort of thing. If you happen to be a subscriber on us podcast, go to YouTube. Click subscribe over there. Uh, if you're a Blaze TV subscriber, go over to YouTube. Click subscribe. Maybe give me a rating over on iTunes. All this stuff really helps us. Uh, it's the only way I can really get the show to people. Um, so we really do appreciate you doing that. And, you know, the, the algorithm robots are aligned against conservative content, so we need all the help we can get. You doing this stuff helps us spread the word of conservatism all across America. See you next week.